Please begin to turn in your Bibles to the two passages that we're going to be using this morning. And the first one is 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15. And sort of another text they're going to be using with that is Mark 10, 45. I'm going to be reading those two in just a moment. Our message this morning is entitled Gospel-Centered Servanthood. Gospel-Centered Servanthood. And really, we've, we've come... These next two messages are the bullseye for why we've done this series. I believe it's what God's doing in our lives as a church and in your lives personally. This is it. This is is where God wants to deliver us. Gospel-centered servanthood. We took a look at the foundational message four weeks ago. One another. Selfless living in a selfish world. What does that mean like? What does that mean? It means loving one another. God said, love me and love one another. So that's the foundational message. And then we started asking questions. Okay, so what what does loving one another look like? And two weeks ago, we said it looks like forgiveness. Because you see, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to die on a cross for our forgiveness. So love there is seen as forgiveness. That was two weeks ago. And then last week we asked kind of a funny question. All right, so what does love smell like? And and so we talked about the fragrance of love. The scent of love is mercy. God said, be merciful as I am merciful. And that's difficult. But that's that's what love smells like today. Today and next Sunday. This is what we want to ask. All right, Al, what does love do? What does love do? Don't just say you love me. Do what I command. So if we say we love God, and we say we love our neighbor, what what does love do? What does love do? So I I just, I want to pray before we read these texts, actually, as you're turning there. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15. And then we're going to read with it Mark 10, 45. Let me, let me just pray for you. Lord, thank you that you are working in our midst this morning. Thank you that you're pouring out your spirit to teach us. Thank you that you saved us. And you saved us with a purpose. You saved us with your purpose. And so, Father, you've saved us from living for our own purposes and our own agendas and our own selfish ways. And you've saved us to live now for your purpose, your agenda, and your selfless ways. And, oh, Lord, the transformation is glorious. At times, it is very difficult. I pray this morning there would be grace dispensed, mercy dispensed, faith poured out. Because, Lord, quite frankly, we're wired to be selfish. I am wired to live for me. But you have rewired me. You have given me a new heart to live for you and for others. So teach us now how to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm I'm reading from 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 14. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 says the following. For the love of Christ controls us. That's a key word there. Because 
We have concluded this. One has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And the companion text is in Mark. So go backwards. Make a left-hand turn in your Bible. Go to Mark 10.45, please. Mark 10.45. Jesus speaking to his disciples. Right after two of them had asked to be promoted ahead of their friends. One to the right and the other to the left hand of Christ. And the other ones had gotten mad at them. And so they had a big power play. Selfish ambition was on full display. Self was ruling the day. And listen to what Jesus says to them. Actually, let's begin in verse 44. 43. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now here's the key verse, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What does love do? Clear. Love serves. Love serves as Jesus served us. That's what love does. The main point of this message today is that Christ's love launches us into a lifestyle of serving one another. Christ's love launches us into a lifestyle of serving one another. As I was considering this idea of launching, Christ's love launching us into this lifestyle of service to one another, my mind went back to the final space shuttle launch for our space shuttle program. It took place July 4th of this year. And I I, I asked myself, what must it be like to be launched into space? I mean, if if the main point of our text here this morning and of our, our message is that Christ's love launches us, it launches us into a lifestyle of service to one another, but what's it like to be launched? And so... Um, I, I, I just I thought, okay, so you're strapped into the shuttle. You're sitting on top of roughly 2 million pounds of solid rocket fuel. So if I were up there, I'd be thinking to myself, all right, big boy Leroy, here you are. You're not going anywhere because you're strapped in. What would I be thinking as I'm listening? You know, they've got the helmets, and I'm sure they're listening just like the rest of us. Ten. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Freeze the frame. What's going through my mind? Well, former astronaut Sally Ride, when asked if fear was going through her mind prior to a launch, answered, I wasn't really scared. I was very excited and I was very anxious. When you're getting ready to launch into space, you're sitting basically on a big explosion waiting to happen. So you are worried about that explosion. 
Because if something goes wrong in the first seconds of launch, there's not much you can do. It's very different being launched into space from any experience you can have on Earth. And even though we had practiced it over and over in simulators, it's just not the same. It's not even close to the same. Astronaut Lauren Acton described a launch as very noisy and very powerful. He said, I experienced an earthquake once here on Earth. And the feeling of power and sound in that earthquake was a little like the space shuttle launch. In other words, getting launched into space is like sitting on an earthquake. Friends, you can't simulate a launch, no matter how hard you try. It's not even close. And no matter how impressive it is to watch a space launch, I don't know, maybe some of you have, it just doesn't compare to actually being on the shuttle and being launched into space. Here's the deal. God wants to launch us into a lifestyle of serving one another this morning. And he does it through Christ's love. You see, God's launching us and the two million pounds of solid rocket fuel that gets us off the ground, it's Christ's love for us. It's Christ's love for us. That's what launches us. Christ's love is the motive for us serving one another. It is the model for us serving one another. And it is the mandate for us serving one another. So let's drop into the first point. I'm getting uneven things as I move around here. So that's okay. Just keep talking. I got it. (laughs) Let's begin with the first point. The motive. And, And when you think motive, I want you to think this way. The motive for us loving one another is Christ's love. But when you think of motive, think of this. What controls you? What controls you? Now, for some of us, we're controlled by Starbucks. There's there's an app for that. Any city I go to, I pull the app up. Starbucks, because i got to have my Starbucks. On a serious note, some of us are controlled by the craving for others' approval. Talking with Joey yesterday, my son and I, we were just talking about what God's doing in our lives and, and just similar patterns. I was just sharing when I was in high school, I was controlled by the love of, of, of people's approval. It controlled me so much that sometimes I'd get into a location and I wouldn't even say anything because I was so craving their approval, I was afraid that I'd say something stupid to get their disapproval. And so their love controlled me. I didn't do certain things because I wanted their, their approval. That's more serious. And some of us are controlled by pleasure, substances. We abuse them. We're controlled by by relationships. So, So motive is control. What's your motive? What controls you? Are you what motivates you to get out of bed? What motivates you to do what you do? What really brings joy to your heart? What controls you? And the first point is it's the love. It's the sacrifice of Christ that motivates us, that controls us. Look again at 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15. Why are you turning there? It's interesting. I had the opportunity to share with some pastors in Atlanta uh, Friday morning. I flew out Thursday afternoon. I did a, a seminar Friday morning at a place called Callaway Gardens, about an hour and a half south of Atlanta. And I flew back Friday afternoon. And I'm in this little Georgia town. And I go, do you have a Starbucks here? And they just like, he's not from around here. We got Dunkin' Donuts. 
Starbucks controlling me. What controls you? Look, look at 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Look at this first line. For the love of Christ controls us. For the love of Christ controls us. The, the Greek word that is translated controls there can also be translated constrains us. It has this idea of, 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 of doing two things. It, it's like the impulse for what I do. That's this idea of launching. But it's also... It, it constrains us from living selfish lives. Well, well, let's keep reading and you see it here. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So what controls you? As we begin talking about serving, Paul is being controlled here by the love of Christ. And the love of Christ is defined how? He died for you. In fact, because he died, I died with you. And what did Paul die to? He died to selfish living. I no no longer live for Paul, I live for Christ. In fact, that word for, the first word of uh, verse 14, it, it really, it relates back to... Paul's selflessness in ministry. See, Paul's life is controlled by Christ's own love, and that love is discerned in Christ's death for us. Thus, Paul has died to self-centered living. So, so this first point's all about control. What controls you? What motivates you? Is it self? Is it what you want? Or is it what God wants? The fact that we died with Christ means that we also live with him. So what happens here is we come and and God draws us to himself and he calls us and he gives us faith and we die to the self-centered living that we're very familiar with. But then we rise from the dead to the selfless living that Christ calls us to. See, the motive, my motive, that what controls me now is no longer what Al wants. It's what Christ wants. I live for him. I no longer live for myself. See that? Verse 15. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Oh, don't miss the end was raised. Don't miss the end was raised. Because there's some of us here that are controlled by pleasures, sins, things that we're trying to get free of. And, 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 you, and we look at this text and we go, but Al, I try, I'm controlled, I can't say no to this. Oh, but we not only died, we were raised. The resurrection gives us hope. Jesus died to sanctify us, to change us, that we might live no longer for ourselves, but for him. What controls you? What do you live for? You know what comes to mind right now is another text that I think might help us understand this. This idea of control. What do I live for? 
And just turn there briefly. Titus 2. Titus 2. Point one is about control. The question I believe the Lord is asking you, what controls your life, dear one? What really controls your life? Not what you do as a hobby. You don't add Jesus to your list of things that are going to make your life better. So you are still in control of your life. And Jesus is just sort of like another doctor that you go to for your soul. And you attend church on Sunday. Perhaps even on Wednesday night if you're on a strict diet. But once you get healthy, you just move on with your life. Because I'm in control. It's what I want. Thank you very much. And, and Jesus says, no, no, no. Paul says, no, no. I'm controlled. I, I, my life is dominated by Christ and his sacrifice for me. Look at this at Titus 2, 11 to 14. Excellent passage for anyone wrestling with things in our lives that are controlling us. Addictions, angers, bitternesses. And this is a great passage here, but listen to Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope. Look at this. The appearing, verse 13, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Speaking of Christ coming back. That's certainly in light of the resurrection, that my hope in living a self-controlled life, a life today that lives for God and not for myself, is based on the resurrection power of Christ. He's coming back. But catch this. Verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous. We're zealots. What are we zealous for? Our own way, our own life, what controls us? No, we're zealous for good works, God's good works. And Jesus did not die in vain. So here's what I want to encourage you with. Friend, if you're wrestling with self-control, if you're wrestling with things that you know you shouldn't do, you want to be controlled by God, but you find yourself controlled by your your own selfish desire to get what you want and be vindicated, so you yell at people, or you're bitter at people, or you won't forgive people, or you're, you're controlled by your desire to want to get your agenda done, so you're impatient, and, and you're angry with people, or you boss people around, you bully them around, or you want to control your, your own life and you want pleasure and so you're indulging in things in the secret that you shouldn't be. Here's your hope. Jesus died to rescue you from that lawlessness. And he did not die in vain. He died for you. And he will complete what he's begun in you. And so this first point is, we serve. The motive for our serving. We're controlled by Christ's sacrifice. We're controlled by Christ's sacrifice. Point two. The model for our serving. So if, if the control of our lives is Christ, the motive for our serving is Christ's sacrifice for us. We no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. What does it look like? What is the model for our serving? It's Christ. Now we're back to Mark ten forty five. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The the second point is this. 
if our service is motivated, there's the control of our lives is Christ's sacrifice, then our service is modeled on dying to self, on, on laying our lives down. You want a model for serving? Serving is laying your life down. Why do I say that? Because Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And we know from Scripture that when he came to serve, he laid down his rights. He never stopped being God. Jesus is God, eternally second person of the Trinity. But he laid down his prerogatives, his divine prerogatives. He left heaven. He took on a human body. He laid down his rights. No one will ever lay down rights greater than Jesus did. No one will ever die in that sense like Jesus did. Nobody, unique. Only one called to die for us. But folks, if the first point is about control, the second point is about dying, laying down our lives. That's the model. All throughout the John, but particularly in John 10, Jesus says this, I lay down my life for the sheep. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one has authority over me, I lay down my life and then, oh, this is the passage that we've heard secular people mention, and, and, and people honor this, and, and it is honorable, but Jesus is the one that makes it honorable. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. See, here's what we're talking about, okay? In the, in the, in the center of our series, what is selfless living in a selfish world? It's loving one another. What is loving one another? Sure, it's forgiving. Sure, it's having mercy. But it's serving. And what is serving? Serving is being controlled by Christ, not by myself anymore. And it's laying my life down. It's laying my life down. See, the love of Christ is not some sentimental thing. But it's his unconditional burden for those lost from God that he expressed in his gift of himself and sacrificial death for them. We're not called to die for people, but we are called to reflect Christ's servanthood by laying our lives down for others. This is where the rubber meets the road. Next week we're going to talk a little more in detail about this. What what does love do? It lays down its life. It serves others. It dies to self. It dies to its own rights for revenge. Talked about that in the forgiveness message. It lays down its own rights for vindication. We talked about that last week in the mercy message. It lays down its time, its talents, its treasures. After all, they're not ours anymore because remember, we died with Christ. We now live in Him by His resurrection power. It's no longer my life. No longer my time, no longer my talents, no longer my treasures. We die to comfort, to safety, to the American dream. You see, this is the model. And the third point, the mandate. The mandate. If the motive, what controls me, is Christ's sacrifice for me that gives me life... That takes away my, my sin so that now I live no longer for myself but for him who died for me. And if the, model, if the model is that he laid down his life for us. He didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for others. And that's what I'm to do. Then the mandate. Oh dear friends. The mandate, the mandate is actually found. And can you click back Tyler to our logo which is the first screen. The mandate is actually found here. 
this, this design, by the way, that Rebecca Rucci came up with, which is a basin and obviously someone washing someone's feet. This, really, this is the epicenter of our series. And in a moment, you can understand why. Because this has a lot of meaning, what Christ did here. But it's the bottom line. If Christ controls me, and if I no longer live for myself, but for him who died for me, and if the model is to lay my life down, lay my rights down, my right to be comfortable, happy, right, <laughs> and I'm laying them down to serve others because Christ laid his down to serve me, and no one laid down more than Jesus did. Then this, this is the graphic that should be embedded in your mind. The washing of one another's feet. The serving of one another. Now let's go to John 13 to become biblically informed as to what that means. Go back to the outline, please. Go to John 13. Point three, the mandate. Our mandate to serve one another is Christ's claim on us. And that claim on us comes in John 13. John 13, please. Beginning in verse 12. John 13, 12. John 13, 12 is occurring on the final night of Christ's life here on earth as a non-resurrected individual glorified body. It's the night before he will be crucified. They're at the Last Supper. And so in John 13, 12, it says this. When he, Jesus, had washed their disciples' feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly. I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, catch this, blessed are you if you do them. You know, I, I can just imagine, the disciples were probably thinking, put yourself back into the first century. Do we understand what you just did for us, Lord? No, we don't. We're shocked. As a matter of fact, there's some of us that are really deeply offended. I want you to listen to how the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary describes what Jesus did in John 13, 12 through 17, so that you can be transported back to first century Judaism and understand the disciples' shock. Quote, Jesus here adopts the stance of a menial, even non-Jewish slave a position looked down on by both Jews and Gentiles. In first century Palestine, where people walked long distances in sandals and where roads were dusty, hospitality demanded that the host arrange for water to be available for the washing of feet, which was done upon arrival, not during the meal. Now, to perform acts of service for one's teacher was considered a common duty of a disciple. The washing of feet, however, was considered too demeaning for disciples. It was too demeaning even for a Jewish slave. And thus was assigned to a non-Jewish slave. So actually, the, the disciples knew they should serve Jesus. But what he was going to do for them in washing their feet wasn't even a category for them to serve him. It was so demeaning, so menial. So it, this was for a non-Jewish slave. 
Let me quote to you from a first century Jewish document that talks about the washing of feet. All manner of service that a slave must render to his master, a student must render to his teacher, except that of taking off his shoe. A Hebrew slave must not wash the feet of his master, nor put his shoes on him. Friends, Jesus' adoption of the stance of a non-Jewish slave would thus be shocking and offensive to his disciples. And it cries out for an explanation. What's the explanation? I mean, I mean, back then when they ate, if you've ever been to like a Korean restaurant or maybe certain Japanese restaurants, you sit on the floor. So if I'm seated on the floor here, my feet are behind me. So, so they're, they're coming to the Last Supper. They're seated on the floor. Their feet are behind there. They're about to start the supper. And they're waiting for a, the most menial, the, most, the lowliest, the lowest of the lowest slaves who they won't even acknowledge, who they won't even look in the face to come and wash their feet. And they turn around and it's Jesus. And they're offended. Peter didn't even want to let them do it. Why did he do it? Is, is he just into shocking people? Does he just want to offend them? Is he just... What's he doing? Well, ESV Study Bible helps us here. You see, with his crucifixion eminent the next day, Jesus washes his disciples' feet as a final proof of his love for them. He's setting an example of humility and servanthood. And he's signifying the washing away of their sins through his death. And the cross the next day. It's a striking demonstration, folks, of last week's message of love for his enemies. Jesus washes all of his disciples' feet, including those of Judas. When he says in verse 15, look at, look at John 13, 15 again. It says in verse 15, for I have given you an example. That word example there. The Greek word for example, it could de- denote a, a, a pattern, example. So, so why did Jesus do it? He's saying, look, I want to show you that in my kingdom, serving and, and emptying yourself of your rights to serve others is what my kingdom's all about. It flies in the face of this world's kingdom. Will you, and he's mandating them, follow my pattern. He's not saying we're supposed to wash each other's feet. Now, if you do, that's fine. But that's not the point. The point is, I, your Lord, the God of heaven and earth, takes the place of a menial, non-Jewish slave. So what's your excuse for not serving? So... What's your argument that you have to be vindicated in this situation? So why can't you forgive someone else? And okay, it's going to cost you a little bit. Help me understand that. Oh, Lord, help us. Right? Help us. I just want to end the message by reading to you what that kind of service looks like. I don't know where I got this, but here we go. 
It will be posted online, so don't worry about writing it down. What's the kind of service that Jesus is mandating us to give to one another? This is what it's characterized by. If God became the most menial servant, this is what we're called to do. When you are forgotten, when neglected, or purposely set at naught, and you don't sting with the hurt and insult of the oversight, but your heart is happy, that is true servanthood. When your good is evil spoken of, when your wishes are crossed, when your advice is disregarded, your opinions ridiculed, and you refuse to let anger rise. Oh, Lord, I, this, is, this speaks to me. It convicts me, friends. When you, and you refuse to let your anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself and take it all in patient, loving silence. That is true servanthood. That's what Jesus came to, to model. He came to empower. He came to launch us into. When you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder. Oh, friends, I do not lovingly, patiently bear any disorder. It's sad. God's working on me. Working on us. This vision of Jesus washing their feet as the most menial slave just has, has impacted me this week. When you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder, any irregularity, boy, don't you mess up my schedule. Any unpunctuality or any arrogance, that is true servanthood. When you are content with any food and offering and any climate and society, an interruption by the will of God, that is true servanthood. When you never care to refer to yourself in conversation, to record your own good works or itch after commendations, when you can truly love to be unknown, But talk about flying in the face of our culture, particularly Miami. We all want our five minutes of fame. Or is it 15? Who knows? Who cares? That is true servanthood. Final slide here. When you can see your brother prosper. It's a tough one, folks. When you can see your brother prosper and have his needs met and can honestly rejoice with him in spirit and feel no envy, nor question God while your own needs are far greater and in desperate circumstances. He got the job that I need. That is true servanthood. When you can receive correction and reproof from one of of lesser stature than yourself and can humbly submit inwardly as well as outwardly, finding no rebellion or resentment rising up in your heart, that is true servanthood. You know, I find it somewhat fitting that the quote is from an unknown source. Friends, our mandate from Christ is to serve in this way. And we can't do it on our own power. It is the power of Christ and his sacrifice that launches us in there. And we're sitting on this shuttle and it's going 10, 9, 8. And I'm looking at this person I got to serve and I don't want to serve them. I don't even like them. They are irritating the fire out of me. And 9, 8, 7. And, And the love of Christ launches me and it says, Al, you're no longer controlled by you. Let me launch you with two million pounds of rocket fuel. My love for you. Yes, Lord. Into an orbit of serving that person. And watch what I do. It's a whole new world up there. I did a lot of research into those spaceships orbiting. I'd like to see that someday. I mean, just breaking through. Gravity. 
sitting on an earthquake, strapped in. And then once you get up there, you're seeing things that few mortals on this earth see. But you got you got to allow the love of Christ to control you, strap you in, constrain you, and then the love of Christ propel you, launch you. Follow his example. Keep your eye on the Savior. He came not to be served, but to serve. And then find the lowest place where no one sees you. You know, I I know I I talk a lot about him, but too bad. Uh, Corey Smidgen. I mean, the, the, the dude serves behind the scenes, you know, the word is, you're the rudder of the ship. How many people come up to the rudder and say, hey, thanks for being the rudder today? The rudder is underwater. No one sees it. You're the foundation. That was Jesus. That was Jesus. The God, born in obscurity, lived in obscurity. The night before he dies, he takes the role of the lowest slave there is. That's why in our lives, this adventure awaits us. It's an amazing adventure. It's not a safe adventure, nor at times a comfortable adventure. Listen, astronauts have to go through all kinds of stuff. Very careful lifestyle, very careful eating. They're quarantined before a space shuttle mission. They can't be with any other person. There's tremendous control in their lives. They have to be self-controlled men and women whose lives are controlled by the mission. But isn't it crazy that all these self-controlled, uptight people like these scientists, pocket protector people with the black horn rim glasses, they get to sit then on an uncontrolled explosion of two million pounds of rocket fuel. I mean, you think, you, you think you're a big time, you know, uh, what are those things called? Roller coaster rider? Get on the space shuttle. But, but it's the people that submit to Christ's control that then are launched into an adventure that the, the wildest adventure seeker on earth could never imagine. That's the mystery. You want to go up? Go down. You want to get? Give. Jose talked about it. Let his love control you. Let the model of his life inform how you should live. And let his mandate speak to you. Are you experiencing the adventure? Does serving one another by the power of Christ's love mark your life? If not, are you willing to get into the adventure? There is a great adventure. Will you let God strap you in to that rocket ship? Let him count you down and launch you. And you know what? At the end of that adventure, you know what you'll hear? From the one who took the place of the lowest servant that night. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord, each one of us listens to these words and hears you tell us to go and serve one another the way you served us. By taking the role of the most menial servant and washing our feet. And we tremble. I don't want to serve that person that is 
that is, that is angry at me has wronged me. I, I don't want to serve them. But you say, do good to those who hurt you. I don't want to bless that person that just cursed me, whether through a bad attitude or whether through whatever. Uh, I, I don't. And your word says, bless those that curse you. I don't want to pray for those that abuse me. But you say, pray for those wrongfully treat you. Lord, I, I pray. Lord, help me. I, I, I need to grow so much in this area. My life would be controlled by your sacrifice for me. That I no longer live for me, but I live for you who died for me and rose. May I see the resurrection. May the resurrection empower me. May it empower my friends. May the resurrection power, may it speak to us that yes, one day we will be like you, Jesus. That corporately we will reflect you on this earth. That you died for this and your death is not in vain. Why? Because you rose. That's the certification that your death accomplished the death of my selfish living. You rose from the dead. May the resurrection be in our view. As we think about serving and laying our life down. Yeah, it's death now. But oh, there's resurrection. There's power. There's resurrection power. I pray you pour it out now in this auditorium. You pour it out to those that aren't here this morning, but will listen to this digitally. You pour it out upon people that are in conflict, that they lay down their life. You pour it out on people that are tempted to just live for themselves and hoard the time you've given them and the talents you've given them and the treasures you've given them. And oh God, pour out resurrection power and release servanthood that reflects you to this world that is decidedly unservant-like. Empower us to live selfless lives in a selfish world, oh God, in Jesus' name. We're going to say a corporate amen to this. And I pray you can say an amen to this. We're going to respond to Christ's mandate by singing a song called, May the Words of My Mouth. It's a great song about dedicating ourselves to the Lord. Friends, we must respond corporately to God's mandate. Why? Because Christ's love launches us into a lifestyle of serving one another. Let's stand and let's sing. May the words of my mouth.